Good morning. I'll be leading us in a corporate prayer this morning. Bow your heads. Father, we do uh, come to you this morning. Lord, we praise your name. We praise you for your mercy that you've bestowed upon us, Father. We praise you for um, your forgiving spirit that uh, you have forgiven us for the sins that we confess, Father. And Father, we certainly praise you for your grace that... uh, in spite of our rebellion, that uh, you love us like a child and uh, we're your heirs. Father, we do come to you this morning uh, with thankful hearts. Lord, we uh, thank you and continue to pray for Bill and Cindy Hay and uh, for Bill's recovery. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in his life. Father, he I uh, pray that uh, as he had requested, Lord, that uh, you would give him the strength to um, finish strong, Lord. And uh, just what that prayer request from him uh, communicates to us as a church, that um, he would want to finish strong. Father, we uh, also praise you and thank you for the birth of Ann Walker Logan, the um, grandchild of uh, Leanne and Charlie Logan. Father, we do pray, uh, lift up our prayer requests, Lord. I pray for um, Mike and Kelly Alsop in Auburn, Father, with RUF in Auburn. Father, as they uh, minister to international students um, at Auburn University, Father, just pray that you would continue to strengthen and encourage them. Lord, and we also lift up our missions conference coming up in a few weeks, Lord. I pray that you would use those of us in the church body to encourage uh, your men and women that you've called to the mission field. Father, I also pray that you would begin to prepare our hearts to receive your message. And Lord, that uh, you would uh, just um, bring us into that uh, conference and uh, encourage us also, Lord. Father, we pray all of these things in your son's name. And Lord, we love you. Amen. In 2002, Blockbuster Video was worth $5 billion. Nine years later, it was worth just over $300 million. That's a remarkable devaluing of their stock and value. And then by 2014, they were pretty much gone. Just before their peak in 2002, shortly before that, at, at $5 billion value, Uh, Some of the investors were concerned about some new technology, but a significant analyst said that the concern over new technology was overstated. Was that person right? Uh, They were not right. Uh, Some of you are here young enough not to even know what Blockbuster is. Uh, The new technology uh, completely engulfed it. They, they, They were so committed to what was working so well for them, they couldn't imagine a world where people weren't still buying Blu-ray DVD players. They couldn't imagine a world where people didn't have libraries of DVDs in their homes. They couldn't imagine a world where they became insignificant and where all of their deep, deep commitments and their successes didn't matter. They couldn't imagine a world like that. 
So that analyst said, the threats of new technology are overstated. You and I live in a world and there is a day coming when real judgment is coming on everyone who's ever lived. The passage we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 9 prepares us for that day. So we won't be shocked and surprised when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of the lives we're living now. Listening to these words helps us prepare for that day, that day which is surely coming. Our passage today is from Mark chapter 9. Uh, really, I'll be preaching verses 42 and following, just so we remember the context of, through the first two verses before that, verses 40 and 41. Hopefully you heard Dave's great sermon last week. But just so you remember the context, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, had seen his true glory. They heard the Father's voice say, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. They came down the mountain, they uh, saw that the other disciples were not, unable to heal somebody, but Jesus healed the man's son. And they argued as they traveled about who was the greatest. Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest of all, you must be last of all and servant of all. He grabbed a child and put him in his lap and in the midst of them and put his arms around the child saying, this is how to be the greatest. You must be last of all and servant of all. And whoever receives a child like this in my name receives not only the child, but me, and not only me, but the father as well. And then John got upset because someone else did a healing, and uh, John told the person to stop because he wanted to keep his position and power. And that leads into this passage. Here's the end of last week's. Jesus said, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone stone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Father, please help us listen to the voice of your beloved Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The very one who gave his life for us, who was condemned in our place, that we might be forgiven when he teaches us about sin, help us hear his voice and respond with faith and obedience supplied by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna walk through this passage today, especially verses 43 through 50. 
And I want to tell you what I'm going to tell you before I tell you. And that's simply this. In verse 42, Jesus teaches us, don't cause others to stumble. Don't be the cause of other people's sin. So we'll look at that first. But then in verses 43 to 48, Jesus teaches us, don't take sin lightly. And then thirdly, Jesus reminds us, don't forget the salt. So that's our outline. Let's go through it together and see what Jesus has to teach us today about sin and faith in him. First of all, Jesus teaches us, don't cause others to stumble. Let's read the verse again. Verse 42, Jesus just said, hey, if you give anyone a cup of water in my name, that person will not lose the reward because the day is coming where all good things will be rewarded. And then he flips it and he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, remember he had the child in his lap in the midst of the disciples. If anyone causes one of these little ones and he broadens it, those who believe in me. If anyone causes anyone who believes in Jesus to stumble, and then Jesus speaks in very strong hyperbolic language and he doesn't finish the thought. He says, if they do that, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Better than what? Well, he's obviously implying righteous divine judgment. If we do that, those things which deserve God's judgment, it would be better for us to have a large millstone stone hung around our neck and us thrown into the sea than to face God's judgment for causing little ones to stumble. That's what Jesus is talking about. So let's make sure we understand the strong language, this metaphor he uses. In the ancient world, everyone worked out in the field and everyone worked in the home, but largely uh, men would bring the food home and women would prepare it in the ancient world. And one kind of millstone that people had in their homes was a small hand millstone. And women would take that stone and they would grind grain and then make bread and make cakes and people would, their families would eat. But that's not the millstone that Jesus uses here. It's a different word, two different words. And this is literally the millstone of a donkey is what Jesus says. And what he means by that is they were very, very large stones and people like you and I couldn't turn them. They were so big and so heavy. So they tethered them to a donkey and a donkey would walk around in a circle, turning the stone, grinding something harder than typical grain because it took that much weight and pressure. That's the stone Jesus is describing here. If we cause little ones to stumble, if we are the reason that God's people, that Jesus' disciples stumble, pull away from the faith, fall into sin, lose their way, if we're the cause of that, Jesus is saying, it's better for you to have that large of a stone thrown around your your neck and you be tossed in the depths of the sea. In the ancient world, to be tossed in the depths of the sea was a horrifying thought. They didn't have deep sea divers and they weren't watching documentaries about the blue earth. That was just a horrifying thought to have that kind of millstone tied around your neck and you'd be thrown to the depths of the sea. That was the the place of the dead and the place of great evil and darkness. This was a horrifying thought. So what is Jesus teaching us here? That we should take our influence, our power very, very seriously. The Bible tells us that we all stumble. James says that we all stumble in many ways. But Jesus here is saying, don't be the cause of someone else's stumbling. And here's a principle from the words, these little ones of mine, 
The weaker the person, the worse the judgment. The more power I have when I'm responsible for your struggle and your stumbling, the more judgment that's upon me. Part of what we're being taught here, because the warning is one of severe judgment, is that we should take an inventory of our influence. Have you done that? Have you thought about your influence over God's people, especially little ones? Imagine we just saw saw some families bring their children for covenant baptism. What a good and right and biblical thing to do. What if we interviewed the dads later and they said, "Uh, my goal is to teach my children to be liars and thieves. And when they grow up, we want them uh, to worship uh, worldly lifestyles and uh look really good on the outside, but be really sick on the inside. Anyone vote for that? Not at all. That would be the absolute reverse of the covenant vow that those parents took. And so those dads, those moms have a lot of influence in those children's life and one thing, lives. And one thing that you and I must do is take an inventory of our influence. We must think carefully about Where do I have influence? Where do I have power? What little lives, what various lives are under my influence, under my authority, under my power, and how am I wearing? How am I using that influence and power in their lives? Jesus wants us to take inventory of that and take it very, very seriously. Because I'm a senior pastor, I have to do it a lot. And I tell my closest friends, not here and here, And I tell elders and people that run the personnel committee and and staff something I need to say in front of you is I'm the most dangerous person in the system. I wear the microphone the most often. I lead the whole staff and I'm the moderator of the session. So I'm the most dangerous person in the room. And it's really important that I take inventory of that. And it's important that you pray for me. And that you feel the freedom to rebuke me if I misuse that influence and that power. But we all must take inventory of the influence and the power and the positions that God has given us. Because the threat here, the warning here is severe judgment. And we shouldn't take it lightly. That's what Jesus said. Secondly, Jesus teaches us that we shouldn't take sin lightly. And it's really obvious, and he speaks in hyperbole again. And we read it, you heard it. If your hand causes you to sin, this is hyperbole, don't take him literally, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life that is eternal life with God, fellowship with God, both now and forever. It's better for you to enter into life and live with God now and forever than to have two hands and end up in hell. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to be maimed than go to hell. It's better to have uh, one foot to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Here's the third uh, hyperbole metaphor. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's obviously hyperbole. We have two eyes. um, And if your eyes are leading you into sin, it won't do much good to pluck out one. But you see what Jesus is saying. What's he saying through these hyperboles? Jesus is telling you and me to take very, very strong measures against our sin. In the first one, he's saying, I want you to take uh, inventory of of your influence over over others. Don't be the cause of other people falling into sin. But now he's telling us to take very strong measures against our own sin. Now, this is hyperbole and you're not supposed to take 
the hyperbole is literally, please don't cut off your hands and your feet or pluck out your eyes. But is, is there any world where Jesus, these words can't mean or don't mean take very strong measures against your sin? They absolutely mean that. You must take a sober view of your own propensity to sin and you must take it very, very seriously. Cut off your arm, metaphorically. Cut off your foot, metaphorically. Pluck out your eye. I don't want you to pluck out your eye, but you might have to unplug unplug your laptop for a really long time. I'd rather you fail your classes than be trapped in sin that you can't get out of. I don't want you to plug, pluck out your eye, but you might need to get rid of your smartphone for a year. I would much rather you have eternal life with the Lord in heaven forever and ever and ever than to have another complicated year where your smartphone is causing you all kinds of problems beyond your ability to handle it. Jesus is saying, take very strong measures. Take very strong measures to resist sin and turn away from it. And once again, the warning is a severe warning. Jesus doesn't want us to end up in eternal judgment. No, he wants us to walk with him and to know him, to trust him. And so one of the things that this is teaching us is that we must take very strong actions. We must take responsibility for our sins. But this is hard to grasp and understand because something that Jesus said earlier in the same gospel. It's true. This is what he's saying. You must, I must take very strong measures against our sin. But he's already told us earlier that it's ultimately not our hands or our feet or our eyes that are leading us astray, but it's our very hearts. Jesus says it's from within in Mark seven twenty one, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. What comes out of our hearts naturally? Sexual immorality. It comes from the heart. Theft comes from the heart. Murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. These are heart conditions. So who am I to take strong measures against my sin when that's what's in my heart? Jesus says all these evils come from inside and defile a person. So if this is the human condition that Sin actually resides in me and my heart of hearts. And Jesus commands us to take very strong measures against sin. We obviously need help. And if you hear these very clear commands and these severe warnings in the passage today, and you come to the conclusion, I need help. That's exactly where you're supposed to be. Do you need help fighting sin since it lives in you? You do need help. You need the grace of God in Christ Jesus. If you're like me, you need the grace of forgiveness. We also need the grace of repentance. This too is the work and power of God. I need the grace of justification. I actually have it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So by faith in Jesus Christ, the record of my sin doesn't count against me. It's been put on Jesus and his record of obedience belongs to me. I need that grace. I claim it. It belongs to me. If you believe in Jesus, it belongs to you too. That's great. By the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you have a new record, but you need more grace. By that same grace, that same connection to Jesus Christ, you're becoming a new person. 
The grace of God wakes us up and restores to us our agency. And with that new agency by the grace of God, we are commanded in this passage by the Savior who died for us and lived for us. We're commanded by him to fight sin and take very strong measures against it. No excuses. This is what Jesus is telling us to do. Take very strong measures against our own sin. Now, if you've been here more than three weeks, uh, you've heard a lot of preaching about the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're never going to stop. We're going to keep emphasizing that Jesus Christ died in the place of the wicked. We're going to keep emphasizing that his life counts for us. That's all the true grace of God. And the same grace of God that rescues us gives us power and strength to fight against sin. And that too is received by faith. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. And that work enlivens us and moves us into new patterns of obedience where we look at our sin and take it seriously. And so if this is the most important thing you hear today, do this by faith, trusting in God's grace, trusting in strength, not trusting in yourselves. But if you need to get rid of something in your life to live a holy life and walk with God, do it. Take very strong measures against sin. If you have to give up something that's precious to you to walk closely with Jesus, do it. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Unplug it. Never use it again. Whatever you have to do, by the grace of God and the power he supplies, do it. That's what Jesus is saying. Take very strong measures against sin. And you can only do that by the grace of God and his promise help. But by the grace of God and his promise help, you must do it. We must do it. We need help. And so I want you to see not only do we need help from the Lord, and we need that's the most important thing, the promised grace of God to take strong measures. But finally, I want you to see that Jesus reminds us to not forget the salt. We need help from others as well. Look with me thirdly at verse 49 and 50. Taking them one by one, Jesus said in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Raise your hand if you're very confident about what that means. That's what I said this week and last week. If you read 12 commentaries about Mark 949, you'll get at least 16 or 17 good ideas about it. Trust me. Let me boil it down to probably the most important thing. This is what I think Jesus means. You and I are, because we're called to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, take up our crosses and follow him. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice. First century Jewish people understood that sacrifices included salt. It was part of the sacrificial system. Everyone will be salted with fire. Your life is a sacrifice and it will be seasoned with salt. And here's that salt. It's going to be fire. That probably means either persecution, persecution is going to come and change you because persecution won't come apart from the providence of God or just the natural hardships of life that come because you're trying to walk with Jesus. Those hardships, that's the fire that changes and transforms you. I've sat with lots of you that have said to me, 
Jesus has become more precious to me. And this hardship helped so much. Jesus has become really precious to me, and this failure changed me. Jesus, he's not more precious. He's become more precious to me. My awareness of his grace and his glory and his love has gone up because I walked through something that was impossible without him. That's what Jesus is saying here about every true disciple. Everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be changed and transformed through very, very difficult things. There are a lot of mercies that we would never choose that God uses to make us the people that he's rescued us to be, to get us on our knees, to convince us through his providence that we're dependent creatures, that we need his grace, we need his promised love, we need his strength to live the lives that he's called us to live. When we're comfortable, we're rarely aware of these graces. But when we're crushed, we recognize that we Our need was bigger than we had previously recognized. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice. Fires, probably the pressure and persecutions that come from the outside. Everyone will be prepared as a living sacrifice with the fire, the difficulties of life. That's the salt. So then while salt's on his mind, Jesus says another thing about salt. And here it is in verse 50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again. Once again, he's speaking metaphorically, uh, salt uh, stays salt. But what's the point? If salt loses its saltiness, what value is it? Actually, in that part of the world around the Dead Sea, there was salt that was mixed with other chemicals. And if you burned it, the the good salt's over here and the other stuff would go over there and you just toss that gypsum, that that yucky stuff out. And so Jesus is simply making the point, we, we were rescued and saved to be salty, to be different, to be preservative people in this world, to walk closely with the Lord, to know him in his ways. And so there's some kind of recognizable difference between people rescued by the grace of God and people who've never met God. And Jesus is simply saying, that's who you are. You're salty. You're different. I've set you apart. And through you, I'm preserving good and important things. But if you become like everybody else, those who don't know me, then what good is unsalty salt? And so to live the life that Jesus is calling to here, we need God's help. We need grace, but we need the help of one another as well. And that's what the end of verse 50 says. Jesus says, have salt among yourselves corporately and be at peace with each other. If I'm going to take genuine accountability of my influence, my power, and if I'm going to fight against sin and take strong measures against sin, I need every grace that God has to offer me. I need to receive it by faith and walk with God by faith, receiving his promised grace. And one of the major ways God fills my life with grace is other Christians who are also walking with him, people who tell the truth. Be at peace with one another, not false peace, but real peace. We need to be in real relationships where we look, where men look at other men and say, this is what I'm struggling with. 
This is what I need to unplug and not plug back in. This is the help and accountability that I need. We need real accountable truth telling relationships so that we can grow in grace, trusting in God's power and strength and utilizing the grace and strength that he gives us among ourselves with one another. Uh, This weekend, we had a staff retreat. It was wonderful. We ate way too much food and had a good time together. We left Thursday night and came back Saturday morning and uh, we were in in Mintone and we were on the eastern edge of it and it was awesome and uh, both days if you got up early enough you could watch the sunrise and on Friday morning I got up and I saw a fantastic sunrise I got up over 20 minutes uh, before uh, there was much light at all when I first got up there was just these it looked like a sunset but it was a sunrise there was just deep deep dark reds remarkable oranges and purples. It was just a really, really beautiful sunrise and more and more light was coming. And I was looking to the east and there were mountain ridges in those northern hills of Georgia and and the light is coming and the color is coming. And at one point, looking to the south, there was this green color over the mountains. It was a remarkable time and I was there for a long time and then the sun eventually popped up. Eventually this this fiery ball popped up on the mountains and guess what it did? It surprised me. Now that's really dumb and you're free to laugh at me over that. I, I, I was out there to see the sunrise, but I got enamored with the beauty. I got enamored with all that I was looking at and I actually forgot that the sun was going to pop up in my view, in my vision. And when it did, it was a surprise. Silly as that is, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. He's told us again and again and again. There's no need to be surprised. The evidence is everywhere. It's in our consciences. It's in the word of God. It's in all of life. Jesus Christ is coming back. He who was crucified in the place of the wicked, who is the righteousness of those who believe in him and who will call all to account. He's coming again. Do not be surprised. But by the grace of God, align yourselves with this truth that he who died for you is surely coming again. Let's go to him at the table to receive his promised grace and strength. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son for us. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for paying for our sins so that we can be truly forgiven. Lord Jesus, thank you for your promise to feed us and strengthen us, to nourish us as we draw near to you by faith at your table. We need your grace and your strength. Thank you for this tangible reminder that you gave your body and blood for us and also your promise to sustain us and strengthen us here as we come to you by faith. Lord Jesus, bless us here. Amen.